Right, so if I gave you a thousand guesses, none of you would ever be able to guess what I'm about to tell you about myself. You'd never be able to guess it, ever. Ever. Billy, you could never guess it. You'd never guess it. I don't like to preach on Easter. How many of you thought, you know, isn't that an odd thing to hear a preacher say? But I've never liked to preach on Easter Sunday. It's too big. <laughs> It's just, it's too big. And uh, it's one of those occupational hazards of being a preacher. No matter how much you study and prepare and meditate and, and exegete the text, no matter how much work you put in, you know you, can't, you can never preach Jesus beautiful enough. You can never preach the gospel beautiful enough. And uh, particularly when, when we're contemplating the cross and when we're looking at the resurrection. It's something that you know as a preacher, almost every sermon has this element of frustration in it. No matter how much you work, and you can't touch the hem of this garment. And you know you can't get there, but you leave the rest with the Holy Spirit. Right, Keith? Leave the rest with, with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that unbelievably awful and unbelievably wonderful moment where God allowed Himself to be nailed to a tree. Um, there's nothing else like this in all of the world. Uh, there's no literature that even comes close to this. There's no myth or story that comes close to this actual fact that the living God allowed Himself to be crucified for His people. It's an awesome, awesome thing. I, I uh, have a lot of theology books in my office, and I think I shared this with you a few years ago, but most of you weren't here then. So, um, you know, you really only need, like, two years of sermons in an international church because everybody's leaving all the time. But uh, I've got a lot of theology books and, and uh, I've spent a lot of time trying to find the perfect quote on, on the crucifixion of God. And you know what? There's not one. There's not one. And I, and I, finally, I finally figured out that um, the perfect quote is unquotable. Because as I think about these things, as I think about the, the, the reality, the historical fact, the biblical fact, that Jesus was nailed to the tree for me, what's welling up in me is unquotable. It's, it's, uh, it's stunned, breathless, unutterable awe. And I, I told the morning congregation, if you don't have some sense of awe about what we're celebrating today, then you're not understanding it. And uh, you're not getting it. And I don't think you're, you're hearing it. Um, the immortal, invisible, I am, Elohim, Yahweh, Adonai, Jehovah Jireh, El Shaddai, has been nailed to the tree. And as I've said se several times in this church, let the whole created order stand in awe. What else can the created order do but stand in awe as its creator is nailed to a tree? Let the whole created order and every being in it stand in awe of Jesus Christ who has allowed Himself to be nailed to a tree, stunned, breathless, unutterable awe. Hebrews 2.3 is right. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Man has no excuse, as Romans chapter 1 says. And so as we celebrate the resurrection of our awesome, eternal reigning King, I thought it would be good to spend a few minutes to remember his death and to remember what all of this is about. Some of you probably remember Mel Gibson's movie, right? The Passion of the Christ. 
And uh, when that movie was about to be released, there was a controversy. And many were saying, oh, this is anti-Semitic. And, uh, but what does the Bible say? Who killed God? Who killed the Son of God? Acts chapter 4 tells us. Billy's right. Billy killed him. But Acts chapter 4 tells us that the people of Israel killed God. Acts chapter 4 tells us that the Gentiles killed God. But preeminently, who killed God? Who killed the Son? The Father. We know what Peter says in Acts um, chapter 2, that great sermon he was preaching to the Jews, and he said, this man, talking about Jesus, uh, was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you nailed him to the tree. So Peter makes it, makes it very, very clear. What men meant for evil, what? God meant for good. Men of their own free, depraved, rebellious will murdered the Son of God, and God of His own free, loving, gracious will offered His Son up to be killed for the redemption of His people. Ultimately, God the Father delivered up His Son. Romans 8.32. It actually says it. Romans 8.32. Preeminently, God the Son laid His life down of His own initiative. John chapter 10, verse 18. The crucifixion was God's idea. It was God's idea. It was God decreed, God ordained, God planned, and God initiated. I want you to ever, ever forget that. It was God's idea. With resolute premeditation, Jesus was going to the cross and nothing could stop Him. He didn't get caught in a corner, you know, and end up on the cross. He, he, he wasn't caught unawares. He didn't get framed. Jesus, from the moment He was uh, laid in that manger, He was going to the cross. He told Pilate, that's why I've come. That's why I was born, as Jesus said. Jesus was on His way to the cross. So why does God allow Himself to be scourged and crucified? Because He's a warrior shepherd. And He loves His people. And He's going to redeem them forever. That's why. That's why God allows Himself to be scourged and crucified. He is our Good shepherd. I love John 10, and I made much of this when we were preaching through the Gospel of John. There, that word that's translated good shepherd, it's, the Greek is kalos. And kalos is the, the word that's used to build the, the, the English word kaleidoscope. What the text is saying, he's not just morally good, he's beautiful. He's a beautiful shepherd. And he loves his sheep. And he's come to redeem his sheep. No one takes my life, Jesus says. I lay it down. I lay it down for my sheep. Nobody takes my life from me. And so God is putting Himself between the enemy and His people. He's defeating Satan and sin and death as He goes to the cross. Many of you remember that Pilate, you remember the story? Pilate tried to play the middle the whole time. He didn't really want to send Christ to the cross. He was trying to find some middle ground with, with the religious leaders. And you guys know how it is. That's how it is with a lot of people in the modern church. They're still trying to find that soft middle religious place that they can stand with Jesus. But as I told the morning congregation, <laughs> there is no middle ground with Jesus. You either love Him or you don't know Him at all. 
Because if you know Him, you love Him. And if you don't love Him, you don't know Him. I don't care if you've been baptized and raised in the church and uh, did all the ordinances and did all the confirmation. Listen, friend, it's not religion with Christ. What is it? It's relational. It's the whole, I'm the good shepherd and you're my sheep thing. It's always that. It's always the relationship. It's always the relationship. But Pilate was trying to, he was trying to play the middle. You remember what he says? He says, I can't find any fault in this man. I can't find any fault in him. So to satisfy the bloodlust of the religious leaders, Pilate has Jesus scourged. This was a half measure to try to satisfy the bloodlust of the religious leaders. Let me just explain a Roman scourging to you very quickly. It was a brutal and hideous torture. Uh, as I was preparing this, I went back and, and I watched the Passion of the Christ and I watched that scourging. How many of you have seen this, this uh, scourging of Jesus in that movie? It's hard to watch. It's, in my mind, it's the hardest part of the movie to watch. And it's just, it's simply brutal. And uh, the, the Romans had a whip and it had a lot of thongs on it and it had metal balls on, at the end of these, these tongs and, and uh, sharp pieces of bone and, and sharp metal shards. And, and he would receive, God would receive 39 lashes from a skilled, uh, a skilled soldier. And the, the metal balls would, would cause contusions on the back and then the metal shards and our bones would rip open those contusions and would rip open the flesh and the muscles. God's shoulders, His back and His buttocks down to His knees, the back of His uh, legs would be, would be raw. Uh, we understand from, from history tells us that many times the spine would be visible, ribs would be visible, uh, blood vessels and muscles would be visible, sometimes internal organs would be visible after that 39 lash was administered. The back would be shredded. So why is I am allowing His puny little creatures to scourge Him like this? Because He's a warrior. He's a warrior shepherd. And He's redeeming you and me. That's why. There's no other story like this in all the cosmos. This is why Christians worship. <laughs> this is why Christians sell everything and become missionaries. This is why Christians can be martyred. Because our God is God and our God is awesome. And He's shown us how much He loves us, right? Man, this is why God hates lukewarm religion. You know, He tells us in Revelation, I hate that! God's not lukewarm. He's not lukewarm about anything. Man, He goes to the cross for His people. Our God's not lukewarm. And He expects us not to be lukewarm either. But He's a warrior shepherd. And He's laying His life down for His people. You know the great text, Isaiah 53, 5. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. John 19, 2 tells us that after they scourged God, they put a crown of thorns on His head and a purple robe and they mocked God. And they hit God in the face. Matthew 27, 30. And they spat on God and they beat Him about the head with a reed. John 19.5 tells us that Pilate brought God back out for the men to see and he said, Behold the man. Shall I crucify your king? And what did the Jews say? Crucify! Crucify! The Jews have utterly rejected, utterly rejected their Messiah. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? 
They say, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered him up to be crucified. John 19, uh, 7 t- uh, 17 tells us that Jesus carried his own cross beam. This is an astonishing thing to me. And if you've seen the movie, you, you get some sense of it. How a man that was scourged like that could carry his cross beam. And we know, that, we know the biblical account. He didn't make it all the way, but he carried his cross beam. What an astonishing thing. And there would be four Roman soldiers around him. Uh, uh, as a detail taking him to the place of execution, there would be one in front of him uh, carrying a placard. And the placard would say what, what the crime was of this condemned prisoner. What was Jesus' crime? Anybody remember? He was the king of the Jews. <laughs> it wasn't a crime at all. It was just a fact. He was the king of the Jews. Israel has utterly rejected her Messiah. And because death, the death that awaited the condemned prisoner was so horrible, many men had to be dragged to the place of execution, but not the warrior shepherd. He was on his way to redeem his people. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. You go to John 19, 17, and 18, and I just, you got to love the economy of the scripture just so few words it just says they took him to Golgotha and they crucified him they crucified him let me just tell you what that would entail first they would strip God utterly naked and then they would lay God down on a cross beam and they would they would stretch out his arms and they would drive a seven inch spike into his wrist and it would crush his medial nerve there running to his hands causing excruciating pain then they would hoist him up vertically and they, they would take an, another seven-inch spike and, and they would run it through his feet. They would run it through his feet. And then the vertical beam would be ho- hoisted and, and it's just like Gibson's movie. His movie is, exact, is historically accurate. And, and they would push the, the beam and as it would fall into a hole, it would hit the bottom and both of God's shoulder blades would have been uh, dislocated as the beam hit the bottom of the hole. Let me just read an excerpt from a book on what happens in a crucifixion. Once the victim is hanging in the vertical position, crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and diaphragm put the chest into an inhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale, the victim must push up on his feet so the tension on the muscles would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bones. After managing to exhale, the victim would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. Again, he would have to push himself up to exhale, scraping his raw back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on until complete exhaustion would take over and the victim would not be able to push up anymore and therefore not be able to breathe any longer. The entire nervous system was racked with pain. The bones are pulled out of joint. Ligaments and muscles are stretched beyond endurance. Restriction of blood flow created an acute sense of oppression upon the chest. Dehydration, fever, pounding headache, the scorching sun, stinging and biting insects, feasting upon his wounds. Crucifixion was the destruction of a man. That's what crucifixion was. You may remember when Jesus told his men, he said, 
uh, pick up your cross and follow me. They knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about death. You die to yourself and you come with me. Crucifixion was nothing but the utter destruction and annihilation of a man. You guys know the word excruciating, right? You've heard this word? Did you know that this word was coined because of crucifixion? I bet most of you didn't know that. The word is in the Latin, and uh, it, it, it means, uh, the word is excruciare, and, and, and it means intensely painful, agonizing, marked by great intense pain. The prefix is ex, which means uh, intense, and the root is cruciare, which means to crucify. It was so savagely brutal that the word was coined, excruciating. That comes from the practice of crucifixion. So I want to pause just for a minute. And I want to ask you, you know what all this is about, right? You know what all this is about? It's about your sin. That's what all of this is about. You know, some people want a pretty religion with lots of pomp and ceremony. They're offended by the bloody cross. Well, listen, friends, if it weren't for the bloody cross, we'd all be going to hell today. Okay? We'd all be on our way to hell. This is all about your sin and my sin. That's what this is about. If you look at the cross, you get some small sense of how God hates sin and how ugly it is to Him. And so I want to challenge you out there this morning, or pardon me, this evening. If you have sin in your life, you need to deal with it. If you call yourself a Christian, you need to deal with it. This is how ugly sin is to God. The Bible tells us that God is utterly and perfectly, unapproachably holy. And brothers and sisters, He's not just a little put out about your sin. He's not just miffed about your sin. He hates your sin. And the Bible tells us that His wrath has been kindled. I know you don't hear the word wrath in a modern church anymore, but God wasn't shy to tell people, hey, my wrath has been kindled against your rebellion and your sin. All you got to do is go... Read the Bible. I looked at this, this Greek word uh, translated wrath. The Greek word is orge. Let me just tell you what it means. It means rage and fury and ire and passionate anger. That's how God feels about your sin and my sin. I know it doesn't get preached anymore. <laughs> God help us. that We don't have men in pulpits that have enough courage to preach the Bible. But that's what God says. You know, if you go, if you go study, you go study... Uh, uh, the Old Testament, and you, you look at all the incidences where the word wrath is mentioned at least 16 times. Now, I didn't do an exhaustive study, but I did a quick count. 16 times, there's an adjective in front of that, that word wrath. Does anybody know what it is? It's fierce. Fierce wrath. That's how God hates sin. Look at the cross. You get some sense of how God feels about our sin. Jonathan Edwards, that beautiful, awesome you know, awakening, preceding sermon that he preached uh, centuries ago, sinners in the hands of an angry God. This is what Jonathan Edwards says about the wrath of God. If it had only been said the wrath of God, the words would have implied that which is infinitely dreadful. But the Bible says the fierce wrath of God. Who can utter or conceive what such expressions carry in them? And then he says... Who can know the fullness and power of God's anger? Does anybody in here know who could testify to the fullness and power of God's anger? Jesus Christ can. He received every bit of it. 
for your sin and for my sin. Isaiah 53.10, But God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, to render him a guilt offering. You know 2 Corinthians 5.21. You've got to love this verse, man. We'll praise God forever because of this verse. He, the Father, made Him the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Right? That we might become the righteousness of God. I want to say something to you. I've said it to you before. I don't want you to ever forget it. What God's holiness demanded. What God's love provided. What God's holiness demanded of you and me. God's love provided for you and me. In the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. It's the perfect commingling of wrath and grace. That's what the cross is. I mean, actually, every you could do a great study. Every attribute of God is on display in the cross. But particularly, His wrath and His love and His grace. Our warrior shepherd is delivering us from our sins. That excruciating cross is what it cost to buy us out of sin and death and hell. Isaiah 53, 6. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. I, I suspect that most of you know that Jesus was alive on the cross for six hours. He was nailed to the tree at 9 a.m. and He died at 3 p.m. And if you read the biblical account, you see that, you see that uh, at noon, high noon, the sixth hour, darkness fell on the land. Now what does this mean that darkness fell on the land? Obviously this is, a, this is symbolic of God turning His, His back, the Father turning His back on the Son as the Son took your sins upon Himself and the sins of all of His people upon Himself. Listen, we talked a lot about the, the uh, physical suffering of Jesus, but I wanna, what I want to say to you and what I don't want you to ever forget, the physical suffering is nothing compared to the emotional and uh, spiritual suffering that Jesus went through. You understand what I'm saying? He'd been he'd been one with the Father from an eternity past, and one with the Spirit from an eternity past. And during this three-hour period, God had turned His back against the guilt offering that Jesus had become for us. Listen, friends, the 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 physical suffering is 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 unspeakable, but we'll never know the fullness of the emotional and spiritual suffering of the Son of God on the cross. In fact, one theologian put it like this, from the sixth to ninth hour, Jesus suffered in silence the torments of hell. From a human standpoint, this was a limited period of time. However, for Jesus, the divine, holy Son of God, it represented an eternity of suffering. I think that's exactly right. I think that is exactly right. Matthew 27, 46 reads, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the Father hears the prayer and, and immediately the darkness is dispelled. The guilt offering has been received by the Father. The Father immediately dispels the darkness. John 19.30 tells us that... that God shouts. He says, it is finished. And as I told the morning congregation, this is not the shout of, 
defeat. What is this? This is the shout of victory. Our beautiful warrior shepherd has laid his life down for his sheep and his sheep are secure forever. Sheep are secure, as Adam said so well. We are secure forever. And what He has done in His shed blood, Luke 23, 46, records the last words of Jesus on the cross. Father, into Thy hands I commit My Spirit. And I love Matthew 27, 50. You know, the Kalos warrior shepherd says, man, nobody takes My life. And I love how the Bible says this. He yielded up His Spirit. No man killed Him. No group of men killed Him. No army could kill Him. You, got every, you get every man, woman, boy, and girl in the world ganged up against the Son of God. They couldn't take Him out. But He laid His life down. He willingly laid His life down for His sheep. You remember what He said in John 10, 18? I have the authority to lay down my life and... What? I have the authority to take it back up again. And as I said to you earlier, we're not here worshiping a dead martyr. We worship the incarnate, uh, crucified, buried, risen, ascended God. Amen? Amen? That's why we're here. Hey, we're not here worshiping a martyr. We're here worshiping a living God. 2,000 years later. And if it's another 2,000 years, there'll still be people here worshiping this awesome, awesome warrior shepherd, God. He's not a dead martyr. He's the living God. He is the living God. Let me just insert parenthetically here that I'm not going to waste any good pulpit time on uh, debunking the, all of the, the skeptics about the fact that the, rev, the, the resurrection didn't happen. You know, there, there are several key theories here that it was a mass hallucination. Okay, you bet. Uh, the, another theory is that Jesus just swooned on the cross. He wasn't really dead. Right? The third uh, prevalent theory is that the disciples stole his body. And what I want to say to you, if you have trouble with the resurrection, you should read this book by Lee Strobel. It's a great book, and he's got a great um, a chapter or two in here on the resurrection. I would recommend it to you. If you struggle with the, the, the facts about the resurrection, you know, Lee Strobel was a Yale educated uh, uh, man, and he went to the Chicago Tribune. He was a reporter and an editor there. He was a, an atheist and a skeptic, and uh, he just studied it out for himself, right? He just studied it out for himself. And uh, this was his conclusion. People just grasp at straws trying to account for the resurrection, but nothing fits the evidence better than the explanation that Jesus is alive. Although I've tried, I cannot think of any more thoroughly attested event in ancient history. And then he concludes, I was ambushed by the evidence. It would require much more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to believe that Jesus is the risen God. Amen. So, you know, Lee Strobel piles up all the facts. And man, that's good, you know. It's good that he piles up all these historical facts. But that's not why you and I believe. We don't believe because someone can go out and pile up all these historical facts. That's not why real Christians believe, is it? That's not why we believe at all. Hey, it's great. Praise God. Keep up the good work, Lee Strobel. But that's not why we believe. You know, the Bible affirms that Jesus appeared no fewer than 11 times over 40 days to more than 500 people. And I just want to spend the last few minutes we have together and I want to look at one of those appearances. 
It was the appearance he made to, to Mary, okay, at the tomb. And, and I want to talk about her just for a minute because Mary believes for the same reason that you believe. If you believe tonight, it's for the same reason that Mary ultimately believed, okay? Very same reason. Absolutely no difference. So I'm going to be in John 20. If you'd like to turn um, with me there, John 20, verse 11, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, okay? John 20, verse 11. Let me read uh, a couple of verses here. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she, she stooped and she looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in, in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been laying. Man, that's a, that's a picture of the mercy seat. Go do some study back in uh, the Old Testament. Verse 13. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing Him to be a gardener, she said to Him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Did you notice Mary is weeping for no good reason? Why is she weeping for no good reason? Jesus had told all of his followers what? On the third day, I'm coming back. He says this repeatedly. You know, one of the amazing things about the resurrection is none of his people believed him. None of them. Not one, not one believed or understood that he must die for the sins of his people and on the third day he would rise again. Man, she has a lot of love, but she doesn't have any faith. And I, every time I read this text, this is a kind of a sidebar application for you. I always think of you and me, man, wringing our hands over something or weeping over something that God's already addressed. God says, you don't need to be weeping. Claim my promise. And in fact, He's standing right there. He's with her in the trial. What have we been saying for the last several weeks as we've been looking at the first chapter of James? If the trial is here, guess who else is here, Christian? God is here. And God's right there. And he does, she doesn't even recognize Him. He talks to her. And she doesn't even recognize Him. So you, some people would say, well, why does Mary believe? Well, the, the, ration, the, the first response would be, well, she saw Him. No, that's not why. She saw Him. She still doesn't know it's Him. Well, she talked to Him. Well, wait a minute. She's already talked to Him. She still doesn't know it's Him. Why does Mary believe? What does it say in the next verse? Jesus said, Mary. And as I told the morning congregation, nobody can say your name like Jesus. He's your Maker. He's your Redeemer. He's your God. He's your Lord. Nobody can say your name like Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian tonight, it's because you've heard Him speak your name like this. You've heard Him speak to you. You've had a God encounter. You've had a God encounter just like, just like Mary has. She believes it's just that whole John 10 thing. What does he say? He says, man, my sheep won't follow anybody else. They don't know that voice. What? They know the voice of 
the good shepherd. They know my voice. My sheep hear my voice. And they follow me. What an awesome, awesome thing. You know, you remember what Jesus told uh, the Pharisees in John 10, 26. He says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. And I know there's a lot of people in theological circles that don't like it when Jesus talks like that. But He says, you don't believe because you're not one of mine. That's why you don't believe. Go read the text. Makes some people tense that God talks like this. But this is what Jesus says. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I, have, I call my sheep by name and they know my voice. I know my own. My own know me and they follow me. And man, when He said Mary, boom! Jesus, Rabboni. And she's, she starts to cling to him. And what does he say? Hey, man, you know, I have not yet ascended. Go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. So 2,000 years later, here we are, sitting in this little room, just a handful of people from all over the world. It's not about a dead martyr, man. It's about the living God. And every one of us in this room that have that are Christians, we've heard that voice. We've heard that voice. Just like Mary heard it. We've heard that voice. Jesus is who He claimed to be and He is who He claims to be. He is the great I Am. He is the Creator God. He is the incarnate, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended God. That's who He is. And one day, soon, very, very soon, because Jesus says, I'm coming back, what? quickly, one day very soon, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. You know, the world thinks we're a bunch of fools. They think we worship a, a dead Jewish carpenter. You know, and the world uh, thinks it's a myth. They think Jesus is a joke. And... Uh, you know, don't you hate it when they use His name as a swear word, as a curse word? This is one of the things that it just, you know, I just can't, I can't stand it. Just the arrogance and the haughtiness of, uh, of men. And, but that won't be going on much longer because the Kalos warrior shepherd is returning for his people. He's laid his life down. But next time he comes back, he's not coming back as a lowly carpenter. Next time he comes back, He's coming back as King Jesus. And I just want to close with the Revelation. And I'm going to turn to Revelation 19 and I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. Revelation 19. This is how I want to close. And I want to thank Adam and Heather for the great music that they picked for us tonight. Hallelujah! Our Redeemer lives. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah! Our King lives. Our King lives. And that's our assurance. That's our hope, as Adam said so well. Hallelujah. Our King lives. And next time He comes back, this is what it's going to be like. Revelation 19, 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eye eyes are a flame of fire and upon his head are many diadems and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself 
and He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. And from His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may smite the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron, and He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our God. Let's pray together. Beautiful Lord Jesus, we love You. We love You. We thank You for this awesome Gospel. We thank You that You've loved us like this. It's an amazing thing. It's an astonishing thing. We are in stunned, breathless awe as we consider the fact that God has been nailed to a tree. We see how heinous our sin is. And yes, we see how awesome Your love is. And we praise You, great Lord. We thank You that You have risen. We thank You that You rule and reign. We thank You that You're coming back quickly. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord Jesus, we praise You. In Your awesome, matchless, mighty, beautiful name we pray. Amen.